I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, September 23rd, 2011. Sitting in my brand new desk chair, (laughs) the other one bit the dust. So yesterday I had a bookshelf bite the dust. We had a microwave in our home bite the dust uh, the day before. Today... I had an office chair bite the dust. Apparently, I'm not living in God's favor. I need to quick tithe to Robert Morris so that I can get my finances to be blessable. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It's one of those weird days because <laughs> yeah, I'm so cheap. But one of the things I've learned is is that the cheaper the office chair, the more work you have to do in putting it together. didn't anticipate that. Anyways, <laughs> it's one of those days where it's like, okay, I'm coming to the radio today and I just don't <laughs> feel organized. I'm not as organized as I normally am. That's all right. Let me, let me talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've, I've got an email that I want to read for you. We've got an update today from uh, Melissa Fisher, who's the uh, ho- and the answering machine for the Holy Ghost. Um, I've got a Perry Noble update. We've got a terrible story we need to talk about uh, out of Guts Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A terrible story coming out of there. And uh, and then we're going to, uh, those of you who follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you've already kind of been through this, but that's okay. I'm going to repeat the thing here. We're going to do a, a historical pop quiz today, and uh, and I'm going to wax eloquent about some of those things. So, uh, the, the, I mean, seriously, I think I'm just going to just dive right into it. It seems like, well, don't you have a monologue today? No, don't have a monologue. I was constructing a um, uh, an office chair. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway... Now I, I don't have a monologue today. Oh, I, I do want to say this: we're gonna, in our. It's going to be a shorter program today, and uh, not because of the office chair, but um, I'm not going to be doing. I'm not going to be reviewing a long sermon today. In hour number two, when we get to our sermon review, I'm going to be playing a very, very brief, short, short, to the point, good sermon 
uh, from uh, Faith Lutheran Church in uh, Greenfield, uh, Indiana. Uh, the pastor there uh, this past weekend did a fantastic sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, I, I wanted you to hear it, uh, not, not only because it's a good sermon, but uh, there's something that he does in this sermon. I mentioned it earlier this week. And um, the one thing he does in there is he gives a fantastic contextualized illustration that helps us better understand that particular parable in the biblical text. One of the things uh, I've noticed about the seeker-driven guys, um, their contextualization gets in the way of us understanding the biblical text rather than helping us understand it. And so uh, I picked this particular sermon, number one, because he did a fantastic job with a tough text, but number two, the the contextualized illustration that he gave in his sermon uh, was brilliant. It was timely. It's good. It helps you really get to the heart of the text. And rather than getting in the way, like you know, you think about Troy Gramling's, you know, his uh, sermon series based upon the Wizard of Oz. I mean, his contextualization ended up making it so that nothing meaningful uh, was was said in his uh, sermon. So. Uh, you know, we it, we got a lot of ground to cover. Let's just put it that way today. So, but it's going to be a shorter edition of Fighting for the Faith. So, just want to let you know that. So, uh, we're going to dive into the program pro- proper. If you got fuzzy bunny slippers, if you have a brand new desk chair like I do, uh, you know, <laughs> make yourself comfortable, and uh, we'll, we'll just get right into it. All right, so I got an email here from a Dr. Philistine McGraw. Why do I feel like Philistine McGraw might be uh, related to Tex Mercury or Pastor Dame Bramage? Just, you know, just a, a feeling I have. So uh, the uh, email reads, uh, Dear Mr. Rosebro, this is from Dr. Philistine McGrice. says, in your September 20th sermon review of Matt Sweetman's Angry Sexy People uh, series, you you asked, is he, Pastor Sweetman, a licensed family therapist? Well, that's a fair question. Well, the answer is no, he's not, but I am. More precisely, I am Dr. Philistine McGraw, founder of the Center for eisegetical counseling in the in Colorado Springs. You may have seen my apprentice during the second to last week of the Oprah po- uh, program. I, I don't really watch Oprah, but okay. <laughs> yeah, Phil, Philistine McGregor. Yeah, nah, anyway. Uh, to cut to the chase, Chris, I, I think you're limiting the scope of what God can do through his words. Th- though I don't agree- disagree with any of your assertions that, quote, this passage is about X. I-, I think you're off base to the extent that you're claiming that this passage is about X and only X. Why can't there be a Y thrown into the mix or a Z for that matter? God's word is so rich, I would argue that he can go back to the beginning of the alphabet if he so chooses. So uh, to my mind, I don't think Matt Sweetman went far enough in his exegesis of Judges chapter 14 and 15. He, He was right on the mark with the relationship angle, but I was disappointed that he didn't take it to the next level. For example... 
uh, take the mention of the 30 changes of clothes. I think Matt missed a great opportunity to plumb the depths of God's word on um, sartorial matters, specifically in this passage, not giving us a little Old Testament nudge toward taking our own wardrobe seriously. I mean, even if you're if you're dressing down for an emergent service, you need to do that to the glory of God. With 30 changes of clothes, the believer has a lot more flexibility and uh, with jeans, t-shirts, etc. You know, maintaining such a deep bench would allow even Mark Driscoll to miss uh, to kiss Mickey goodbye. I think that's a, a reference to the fact that one of Mark Driscoll's favorite preaching t-shirts uh, has Mickey Mouse on it. Anyway, um, Dr. Philistine McGraw continues. She says... Um, Truth be told, the Old Testament is chock full of passages with levels of meaning that have either been ignored or that have new meaning in light of recent events. Well, here's just a few examples. Uh, From uh, Hosea chapter 1, Hosea marries a prostitute, a presage of Israel's forsaking of God. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes, but that's not all it's about. Just as Samson was not exempt from the sticky dynamics of romantic relationships, the prophet Hosea was expected to get down and dirty with non-Christian seekers, so to speak, and we, by example, should not turn up our noses at the unbelieving world. Hmm. Yeah, never really saw that in Hosea chapter 1. Thank you, Dr. Philistine. Anyway, uh, Dr. Philistine continues. Um, She says, um, in Exodus 2, we read of the mother of Moses, who in in desperation fashioned a waterproof wicker basket and cast her young offspring on the waters. God protects his called out ones. Right, absolutely. But Moses' mother also provides a great example of using our natural resources instead of relying on fossil fuel gobbling machinery. Oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of, sort of. So Exodus chapter 2 gives us an example of going green, if you would, and not relying on fossil fuels. Never seen that angle before. Yeah, okay. Again, Dr. Philistine is uh, the founder of the Center for Isogetical Counseling in Colorado Springs. Okay, next. Uh, Later, God provided manna in the desert for the wandering Israelites. Now, God provides for his own, sometimes just not enough for day-to-day sustenance, but could Exodus 16 also be a lesson about the importance of sustainable development? I would argue that this passage of Scripture acquires some more poignancy with each passing day of the enslavement of our times to ecological lunacy. Okay. <laughs> Boy, this is some... Um, you know, I got to tell you, Dr. Philistine, your eisegetical um, skills are... Um, I mean, almost unmatched. I would say that Dr. Uh, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church probably has you beat in this department, but wow, you're a close second. Uh, next, uh, Dr. Philistine McGraw points out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, this trio's miraculous preservation from the fiery furnace and their encounter of a pre-incarnate Christ speaks volumes about God's deliverance, but Daniel 3 is also a lesson on team cohesion. With more and more of us forced into group work at our jobs, this wonderful lesson on working together while taking the heat could be more relevant in 2011. (laughs) I'm going to beat my head against my desk here in a second. Hang on. (laughs) 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego team cohesion while taking the heat. Wow, that's good. Anyway. <laughs> okay, finally, Dr. Philistine uh, goes back to, finally back to Hosea. One of the most somber passages in the Old Testament is, is Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, in which the prophet declares of Israel, quote, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Now, a reasonably, a reasonably straightforward prophecy concerning Israel's embrace of Baal worship. It, it, indeed, it is that. But I can't help but think, especially given the tumultuous weather that we've had in 2011, that this prophecy may be speaking to us today. Reaping the whirlwind? I think it's also a cautionary tale against those storm chasers. Uh, types that haunt the uh, Weather Channel every night of the week. Let's not forget that Baal was, among other things, a weather god. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> the uh, this is the end of the email here, Chris. I could go on with plenty more examples. I am so sure you could, Doctor Philistine. <laughs> but I got to tell you, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego one team cohesion and taking the heat together. Yeah. That. <laughs> That one takes the heat. Uh, that one takes the cake. Anyway, um, Chris, I could go on plenty more examples, but but my two most recent books, The Codependent Jebusite and, and Listening to Frankincense, cover many more of these in detail. I, I took the liberty of sending review copies to you <laughs> to be sure be sure to look at them in the Pirate Christian Post. Uh, best regards. Philistine McGraw, Ph.D., uh, Psych D, D-Min, and LCSW, Licensed Clinical Social. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Philistine, for that um, fantastic example of eisegetical <sighs> Bible twisting. Anyway, <laughs> I get some of the strangest emails here at Fighting for the Faith. Anyway, moving along. Yeah, that can uh, mean only one thing. Uh, we're going to be hearing from one of the members of the uh, Patricia King gang. In this particular case, it's another installment of the Holy Ghost answering machine. Uh, the This is Melissa Fisher. Now, uh, if you ha if you haven't listened to Fighting for the Faith before and you're not familiar with Melissa Fisher, it, it, the, the Holy Spirit that she believes in, well... He's kind of lame, and what I mean by that is is that um, he really doesn't know where you live. Um, he has no clue how to get a hold of you. Um, yeah, I mean, at least directly. I mean, so he doesn't know how to use email, um, does, can't knock on your door, doesn't know how to phone you, either on landline or cell phone. Um, apparently uh, is really bad at semaphore flags and um, and smoke signals. And so he's been reduced to... Well, um, contacting you through the help of um, Melissa Fisher. And so Melissa Fisher, from time to time, she gets messages from uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, um, you know, in fact, in my mind, when I, I, I picture the poor Holy Spirit, he's up there in heaven. And he contacts Melissa Fisher and he says, Hi, Melissa, it's, uh, it's the Holy Spirit. And I'm so glad I have you because if it wasn't for you, I'd never be able to, to reach anybody. Uh, this 21st century world is so complicated, and I never really did figure out email and things like that. So uh, if you could pass along this message for uh, so-and-so, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, that's kind of how I picture the Holy Spirit communicating with her. Always so depressed. But uh, Melissa, being the uh, <clears throat> the good uh, 
Christian woman that she is, always is willing to take these messages that she receives directly from the Holy Spirit and faithfully creates videos and puts them on the Internet. Unfortunately, um, if you take a look at the number of views her videos get, um, well, not too many people view her videos. And so, you know, I feel really bad for her, the Holy Spirit that she believes in. And so as a public service uh, to her Holy Spirit, um, you know, we we do audience magnification here at at Fighting for the Faith and pass along – uh, these messages that she gives as a, as a means of reaching more people so that uh, the Holy Spirit has a greater chance of actually reaching the intended person or persons that he's trying to reach. So uh, with with that in mind, here is Melissa Fisher and, well, her latest video entitled Come Up Here. Hello, friends. I have got a word for actually a lot of you that are watching this clip. Um, so I, apparently, I mean, There's a group of people the Holy Spirit wants to reach through this video. Okay. You in your life with God, you are very, very, very hungry. And you have been wanting the more of the Lord. You've been wanting direction. And maybe you've been feeling it's like, God, I've come to the end of what I've been doing, but I don't know how to get more. And I have been crying out. And the thing is, yes, you've been crying out. You've been saying, God, come down, rend the heavens, come here, show me. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And it's just been a cry in your heart. It's almost been a little bit discouraging and frustrating. But what the Lord would. So if this is you, I mean, if, the, if she's describing you, I mean, there could be multiple people here that this could be describing. Well, then this is this <clears throat> particular message uh, from the Holy Holy Ghost answering machine, Melissa Fisher. Well, this one's for you. What did the Holy Spirit tell you, Melissa? Let's say to you today is come up here. Hmm. So the Holy Spirit is saying to these particular people. Come up there. Have you got a ladder? I mean, how do you do that? You know that verse in Revelation, it's chapter 4, verse 1? Yep, familiar with it, very familiar with it. It, it the whole, You know, he hears a voice, John, the the apostle, the, the, the one Jesus loved, um, he heard a voice from heaven saying, come up here. Um, <clears throat> Melissa, um, yeah, I don't know how to break this to you, but when that voice spoke... That wasn't a general call. Um, that was a voice speaking directly to the Apostle John. And that happened like 2,000 years ago. And so um, the, that's not really, um, the Holy Spirit is not telling you and me to come up to heaven um, <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It's not saying that. Where it talks about John saw a door standing open in heaven and the Lord says to him, come up here and I'm going to show you the things that are to come. That verse is for you. You see, many times we say, come down, Lord, but the Lord is wanting us to come up. Because remember, we're in a relationship here. And what kind of a relationship is it if he's the only one coming to us? Uh, You do recall that in the verses that uh, follow verse 1, Immediately, John was up there. Um, hmm. And so how do you do it? It is by faith. Remember, Matthew 10, 7, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It's right in front of you. So all you've got to do is step in. And guess what? Remember. (laughs) 
What do you want me to step in again? Remember, you've got an invitation. It's in Hebrews 4.16 where it says, come and approach boldly his throne of grace. Or it says, approach with confidence his throne of grace. And so he's waiting for you to come up. because. And uh, really, so God's waiting for me to just pop right up into heaven. Oh, boy. I... <laughs> He wants to show you things. And the way if he wants to show me things, don't you think he's powerful enough to show them to me? That you're asking for it, that's okay, but there is a better way, and he's calling you up. So all you have to do is say, God, by faith, I step into the kingdom of heaven. I step before your throne because, Lord, I've got an invitation. And they begin to wait on him and see what... Yeah, the weird thing is that when you take all those little verses that you ripped out of context and look them in context, there's no invitation there for us to do anything of the sort. What he shows you, see what he tells you. And I believe that you're going to begin to get many answers to the questions that you've been having. A lot of that hunger that's been burning in you, you're going to start to get it satisfied. You see, God said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And he wants to do that for you. But this season, start coming up and you will not be sorry that you did oh man you know it makes me wonder if she drinks like those energy drinks prior to recording her videos wow um what how is it that anybody thinks that that's actually biblical teaching i have no idea all right we We're up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Good night. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. 
Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and his presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! How am I supposed to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas... Hung him himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death. What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture. Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low 
prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they're into the nonsense of Patricia King and others and are not preaching the gospel to you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, Donate. The other says, Join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 Every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to um, you know to F- Post Office Box five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. Okay, moving along here, man. I gotta make a decision. I gotta do. Uh, yeah, uh, well, hang on a second here. Let's do this. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hook, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. That means we're doing a paranormal update. Doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flower. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flare. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a sheer... All right, yeah, enough of that. Okay, so uh, we got a Perry Noble update, and uh, what I mean by that is this. Um, remember a couple of days ago, we covered the fact that, well, Perry Noble, uh, mm, uh, well, um, how how shall we say it kindly? Um, well, he spoke out of both sides of his mouth. Um, he, he um, well, he said uh, two conflicting different things, and uh, here, let me remind you of what those things were. Here's... Perry Noble um, speaking at the Elephant in the Room conference at the end of March of this year. Here, 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 listen. That's the other thing, though, James. That's the other thing. We really do have a heart. When we get together, we don't just get together and go, how can we piss a lot of people off? I know. (laughs) Highway to hell. That'll do it. I mean, we pray. We seek the Lord. We're asking we're begging for his direction it's not just me going i think i got a good shock effect thing this easter it's we really come together with a purpose of what do we really feel that god wants us to do in the service so that's the first one that's that's perry noble talking about 
well, the highway to health decision that he they don't just he doesn't just you know try to figure out you know things for shock effect, but yet just a few days earlier um, at his own Unleash conference, Perry Noble said this. Now you'll notice I'm, I've added a little bit more. Uh, context to this one through the help of um, Ken Silva's website, uh, apprising.org. But uh, here, listen. Every once in a while, I have this thought. We got to piss off the religious people. (laughs) How are we going to do that? A few years ago, I was thinking about it because Easter was coming. You know, and we weren't going to do the ribbon dancers, Arise, my love. Arise, my love. Arise, my love. The grave no longer has a hold on you. That's going to be on freaking YouTube. Bye. So I'm praying one morning. I'm like, God, how are we going to start this thing out? I'm in my basement. I got my iPod. I'm lifting weights. The song by ACDC, Highway to Hell, comes on. I said, that'll do it. (laughs) Now, I know know you shouldn't listen to ACDC when you're working out, but I do, and it's awesome. (laughs) A couple years ago, we started out Easter with Highway to Hell. It was awesome. The emails the next week, I came to church on Easter, had my hat on, my husband had his pastels. So you'll notice that, you know, he mocks uh, religious people. Anyway, the, just pointing out the obvious, I mean, he's telling two completely conflicting stories that factually can't well uh, be worked out. Now, um, rather than doing the right thing, and that would be for Perry Noble to say, you know what, guys, I mean, that, that I, I'm sorry. You're right. I lied. I'm sorry. I apologize. I, I I didn't speak the truth. I you know I was pandering to one group and uh, and and the truth is is that this is really you know one way or another. This is how it it really went down. And it, what I just did. I what I'm sorry. The the Bible says that a, a pastor needs to be above reproach. And obviously. I told two stories that can't be ironed out, and I apologize for the hurt that I've that I've you know I've done you know dished out to people how I've hurt people. I apologize for speaking that way and talking about the need to <clears throat> uh, tick off um, religious people. That's just not right. Uh, the job of a pastor is to feed God's sheep. Um, yeah, I I'm sorry. I was wrong. It, rather than doing that. Perry Noble did this. He sent out a tweet, and <clears throat> here's what he said: People who make a make it a habit to point at the out point their fingers at you often do so in order not to deal with a sin in their own lives. Uh huh. So um, that so that so that was his response. Uh, the people who make it a habit to point their fingers at uh, at you often do so in order not to deal to deal with the sin in their own lives. Yeah, that's kind of an adventure in uh, missing the point. Um, and um, 
and not it doesn't really deal with the uh, the issue and you know and there's like all kinds of issues here and so what i thought i would do is uh, thanks to scott kingsolver i'm going to um let um uh, well mark driscoll of uh, mars hill church in uh, seattle in seattle washington um at least provide a little bit of uh, a counterpoint talking about Sin, sinful responses to uh, to sin. Here's here's Mark Driscoll. What are some sinful responses to sin? Some people love to minimize their sin, number one. It's not that big of a deal. You're totally overreacting. Minimize it. Yes, I did it. Big deal. Number two, I'm the exception to the rule. I know that's true for everyone else, but I have special circumstances. I'm the exception to the rule. I know you're not supposed to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend, but they lost their job and we're going to get married, and we love each other, so we're going to live together and sleep together. But it's okay, because we're the exception. What I think is curious is everyone thinks they're the exception. Number three, blame shifting. It's not my fault, it's their fault, right? We see this in Genesis, right? <laughs> we see this with uh, uh, Perry Noble. It's not my fault. I didn't lie. No, it's it's those nasty, horrible people who are pointing their fingers at me. That, and the reason why they're doing that is because they're just trying to cover up their own sin. Uh, it's the woman and you, Lord God. That's what Adam says. The woman says, no, it's the devil. Blame shifting. Dealt with a guy not long ago. Screams, raises his voice, yells at his wife. Total violation of First Peter 3. Be considerate with your wife. Don't be harsh with her. I said, dude, you cannot scream and yell at your wife. He said, look, she makes me really angry. Oh, well, then scream at her. (laughs) See, that's blame shifting. She makes me yell at her. No, she doesn't. Whether or not she sins against you, we'll get to that in a minute. How you respond, that's your responsibility. You can't blame it on her. Do this all the time with couples that are committing adultery, both or either. They always blame it on the other. Well, they're cold, they're distant, they're no fun, they're no good. It doesn't excuse sin. There's no blame shifting here. You can't blame it on them. Some of you are hardcore mercy people. You want to see everyone as a victim. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt. You want to hear them out. You want to... You want to listen. You have a hard time saying, maybe they did sin. But the way you're responding, that's sinful. You're responding to sin with sin, and you have no right to do so. If you're a hardcore mercy person, if you're the give everybody the benefit of the doubt person, if they're hurting, then they must have been sinned against. If they're crying, then they must have been sinned against. Be very careful. Yeah, and uh, I I think in that particular case, James McDonald's response comes to mind. James McDonald on his blog yesterday actually tried to make the case that Perry Noble didn't lie. 
that uh, this was just nasty, terrible people. Those bloggers, who, you know, those people out there who live in their, you know, pajamas and and are naked typing on their laptops in a bean bean bag while eating Cheetos. Uh, there, you know, that uh, it's those horrible, nasty all people who are just trying to discredit a man of God. Uh, that's completely beside the point. And uh, and so he tried to come up with a way to harmonize both stories, that basically both were true. Uh, and and it's uh, his um, his loyalty to his friend, Perry Noble, is commendable. But uh, what he did really is not doing Perry Noble a favor. And, you know, basically trying to say both stories are true. Perry Noble wanted to stick it to the religious people and come up with something shocking. And that's the idea he came up while lifting weights. So then he drove to church and shared it with his team. And they all prayed about it and sought the Lord's face. And the Lord said, yes, please play Highway to Hell to open the Easter service. I mean, both of the harmonizing both of those and saying that really God was behind it. That doesn't doesn't make any sense. Absolutely doesn't make any sense at all. And I want to point something out to you. What's the gist of that story then? Okay, so if I seek God's face, if I pray about it and I just go ahead and go with it, that I that I could I can say basically say God gave me approval to do it. I mean, that is a completely subjective argument. Don't you think the Bible has something to say about what's appropriate and not appropriate in the house of God? The answer is the Bible does say things like that. And it's very, very clear in Scripture that friendship with the world is enmity with God and that we are not to practice evil. And and playing highway to hell, I can come up with at least a half a dozen passages of Scripture in context that would mitigate against that. So there's no, I don't care how, I don't care if Perry Noble and his entire staff fasted for a month. That would not mean that God is the one who sanctioned what they did. And the reality is, is that Perry Noble's stories still don't make sense. You know, factually, they cannot be reconciled. You you can't really harmonize them. But let's continue. I think uh, uh, Mark Driscoll is making some good points here about sinful responses to sin. You don't allow them to blame shift. Be very careful that you get both sides of the story. Proverbs says, everyone seems right until the other side is heard. Be very careful. People love to blame shift. It's not my fault. They made me react in this way. Diversion, number four. This is changing the subject. How many of you are parents and you realize kids learn this very early, right? One kid hits the other kid. You say, what did you do? They say, look, a birdie. (laughs) Change the subject. People do this too. What I love is people who when they sin and you confront them in their sin, they change to talk about how they feel about you confronting them about their sin. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The only reason why people point out things about you know, guys like me in ministry is because they're just trying to hide their own sin. Yeah. Again, it's blame shifting and changing the point. It's changing the subject. That's wrong. That really hurts my feelings. I feel like you're judging me. I thought we were friends. Don't change the subject. We're talking about your sin, not how you feel about me telling you you're in sin. We'll get there maybe later. 
makes me really sad that you would say that I did that. You did it. Let's not talk about how you feel about what I said that you did. Let's talk about what you did. Right on. Now, I think Mark Driscoll makes a good point, and uh, kudos to uh, Scott Kingsolver uh, for uh, pointing us to uh, Mark Driscoll's uh, thing here. And I think it absolutely is spot, spot on the money and kind of fleshes out the, the bigger problem here. I mean, can't, you know, Perry Noble's response, uh, basically changing the subject, not addressing the issue at all, and saying people who make it a habit to point their fingers at you often do so in order not to deal with their own with sin in their own lives. I mean, that's completely changing the subject. And by the way, I want to make something very clear. I am a sinner. And I don't mean a theoretical sinner. I am a full-blown, 100% sinner. I sin against God daily in thought, word, and deed by the things I do and by the things I don't do. If you were to step into my brain and just tootle around for you know 10 15 minutes you would come back with the conclusion that Chris Rosebro is actually probably trying to compete with the apostle Paul in being the chief of sinners I am a sinner and the reality is is that I don't try to not deal with my sin Instead, I believe the gospel message that my sin, every single sin that I've committed, has already been dealt with by Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross for me. I don't try to deal with my sin or hide my sin or not confront my sin or not deal with my sin. None of the above. Instead, thanks to good, solid biblical preaching, by the pastors in my life, I've learned how to confront my sin head on, and that's to confess it and to hear that it's forgiven. And so, um, no, I don't not deal with the sin in my own life. I do deal with it. But that being the case, that's not even the point there, Perry. The point is is that you told two, two completely factually incompatible stories. And even if you harmonize them, what you said in both instances, it, there's stuff that's theologically deeply wrong with the things that you said, both at the Unleashed Conference and at the Elephant in the Room Conference. Deeply, deeply wrong. And it's time for you, Perry Noble, to start listening to your critics and addressing the substance of their criticisms. Because contrary to what you believe and what you spout from your pulpit and from your stage when you have pastors in your, in your, in your house, is that you do have godly critics. And you don't get to choose them. You don't get to pick and choose who you listen to because the truth is true regardless of who it is that's bringing it. The truth is true regardless of the one who's pointing it out. And it's time for you to come to grips with that particular fact. All right, moving along. This is a sad story. This is tragic. All right, this story uh, comes to us basically, uh, well, via a news affiliate, uh, one of the local news stations out there in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, if you're a longtime listener to Fighting for the Faith, then you know that uh, one of the uh, the things that we, well, one of the uh, pastors we've covered in the past here at Fighting for the Faith is a gentleman by the name of Bill Shear. 
And uh, Bill Shear is the uh, the pastor of Guts Church uh, in uh, Tul- Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, it turns out uh, that uh, Guts Church, um, well, in their effort to reach out to um, to men in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area, has been staging um, boxing nights. Um, here's uh, here's uh, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma's KOTV. Uh, which is the local CW affiliate uh, reporting on what happened last night at Guts Church. A Tulsa church sponsored a fight night yesterday that ended with one of the fighters dead, prompting two state investigations into what happened. It's not known yet if the man died from injuries in the fight. News on 6 reporter Emory Bryan has the latest. Emory? Well, Jennifer, the man who died is 24-year-old George Klinkscale. He played college football for TU and coached football now at Tulsa Public Schools. He died shortly after fighting in a boxing match at Guts Church. Here we go. This video is from one of the five previous fight nights at Guts Church. The fights are targeted at young adults 18 to 30 years old and promoted online as part of their sub-30 ministry. This is a picture of one of the 12 scheduled matches Wednesday night. Guts held the match in a parking lot and promoted it with billboards, but it passed under the radar of state authorities who oversee amateur boxing. Now they're looking into the death of former TU linebacker George Klinkscale who within minutes of his match was critically ill and who died shortly after arrival at St. Francis Hospital. It is hard to know that I was just sitting there talking to him with this real deep conversation and I see him Saturday at the game and wake up this morning and he's gone. It's just hard to believe. Church pastor Bill Shear didn't return our calls, but the church issued a statement that said George experienced cramping and requested an IV for dehydration from IMSA personnel who were on site at the time. IMSA says a crew at the scene on a call unrelated to the fight realized Klinkscale needed care. Paramedics described it as a medical issue, not a traumatic injury. Regardless of why Klinkscale died, the state authority who oversees amateur sports calls the fight an illegal event, which I've had to take action against by law. The medical examiner will determine the cause of Klinkscale's death. The athletic commission says the attorney general's office will handle the state investigation of the boxing match and determine whether the church that promoted it should face prosecution. IMSA says Klinkscale was considered to be in serious condition when they transported him. So that's the story uh, coming out of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Sad, sad, sad story. Um, and, you know, pray for the families there. But, you know, this leads to some questions, okay? Uh, Guts Church, um, number one, um, Bill Shear is a heretic. He teaches the word faith heresy. Uh, we've uh, we've covered some of the crazy things that they've done there at Guts Church. But what I want to do is kind of segue into a different issue, okay? And 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 that's this issue. Um, what's with all the manly testosterone stuff, and with a, a church holding boxing matches in its parking lot? Um, is, is it really is Christian? Is 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 this the is this the type of manhood? that Christianity promotes is is not the fruit of the spirits uh, the fruit of the holy spirit love joy peace patience kindness gentleness and self-control i mean it, 
I, I look at the video of them, you know, uh, I've looked at several different videos of previous boxing matches, illegal at that, at uh, Guts Church, and it, it, it and the way it's promoted, the way it's carried out, it's, I mean, this would be the historical equivalent of a, of, of a church in the Roman Empire deciding that, you know, as a, as a, as an evangelism event, that they were going to sponsor gladiatorial matches and have gladiators fighting to the death in, in you know, as, as a means of reaching the men in and around their area. It's crazy stuff. Um, I, I mean, I don't even know where to begin to, you know, to talk about this in that sense. And so I'm not changing the subject. Instead, I'm going to be addressing the subject in a slightly kind of weird off-kilter way. And I'll, I'll explain to you what I mean by this. And that is uh, earlier today on Facebook and Twitter, I sent out a uh, basically a series of tweets or status updates that asked a question, okay, that asked a question. And, you know, the, it's a historical pop quiz. And so here, here, let me let me convey this to you this way. And if you don't know the answer to this already, then good, because uh, I want you to think this through. So here's our historical pop quiz. The question is, which 20th century movement considered itself to be neither right wing nor left wing, but a third way? Okay, that's the way it referred to itself, as a third way. It's neither right wing nor left wing. It's neither right nor left, but a third way. Now, here's hint number one. This movement rejected Marxist materialism and finance capitalism. So it rejected both of them. Okay. Hint number two. This movement embraced irrational philosophy, and many scholars note that mysticism was the key factor in its irrationalism. Okay, and so it, it 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 held to irrational philosophy. When we talk about rational philosophies, you think about logical positivism and other things like that. Rational philosophy basically is stuff that makes sense. I mean, if you would, irrational philosophy is a motive. It it has to do with tapping into your emotions or intuitively thinking, your your intuitively understanding things. You don't come to the conclusions via axioms or um you know or universal truths that you can tap into or logic or things like that so this movement embraced irrational philosophy irrational philosophy ultimately makes it possible for you to hold two views that are, are logically mutually exclusive as if they're both true somehow in the, in, the, in the idea of paradox but so this movement embraced irrational philosophy and many scholars note that mysticism mysticism was one of the key factors in basically making this irrational this irrationalism possible. Hint number three. This movement emphasized community and openly taught that community wasn't apprehended by rational thought, but was instead experienced. Okay, let me read that again. This movement emphasized community and openly taught that community wasn't apprehended by rational thought. Instead, it was experienced. Hint number four. Uh, uh, churches influenced by this movement no longer taught individual salvation. Instead, they taught the salvation of the community. Churches influenced by this movement no longer taught individual salvation, but the salvation of the community. Hint number five. This movement rejected the idea of transcendent moral truths and instead 
instead insisted that truth was experienced in community. Truth was experienced in community. And when it came to tra- moral morals, morals were something that could be, you know, basically what was moral was at the time what was necessary for the survival and what was good for the community. Okay? There's nothing transcendent that would tell them not to murder. Uh, murder was uh, was something that was relative depending upon whether or not it was expedient or necessary for the survival and thriving of the community. So the community decided these things. And that these, these things were not put upon the community by a transcendent God. Okay, Hint number six. This movement loathed, and I mean this, loathed the representative governments that came to power that were based upon the Enlightenment ideas of individual rights. Hint number six. This movement loathed the representative governments that came to power based upon the Enlightenment ideas of individual rights. Hint number seven, this movement glorified youth, strength, and the will to power. Okay, so uh, what was, what historically, so in our pop quiz, which 20th century movement considered itself to be neither right-wing nor left-wing, but a third way? Okay. Well, based upon all the hints that I've given you, you should have come to the conclusion that the answer to this pop quiz is fascism. The answer is fascism. A lot of people do not understand the 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 worldview and philosophy of fascism and what it taught. And you're thinking, you know, Chris, what's weird about the the list of things, the list of your hints is, is that there's many things that I'm hearing today in the church and in other places that have these same emphases. And I would say, yeah, you're right. They do. You're hearing that correctly. This is what it really is. This is what it truly is. When you hear people talk about being neither right wing or left wing, but somehow that they they're some kind of a, conglo- a synthesis of of both that somehow they can irrationally hold on to a position that that's both right and left that's irrational philosophy in play and that was one of the classic classic statements and beliefs of historical fascism now i want to make something clear i'm not saying i'm not talking about the Nazis. The Nazis are a type of fascist. Okay, so I'm not saying this is Nazi philosophy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this is fascism, and the Nazis were a type of fascist. There were many different types of fascists that had many things in common. And what I've what I've told you about here are some of the primary philosophical concepts behind fascism. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to read two things to you, and the first one has nothing to do with Guts Church, but the second one kind of sort of does, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, do you remember back, um, if you were to go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith, uh, back to an episode I did in July of 2009, I covered uh, the... um, what what Catherine Jeffert Shorey, that's the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, comments that she made in a keynote address that she gave at their general convention at, in Anaheim of, in July of 2009. If you want to listen to it, go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith. You should be able to find it. But I want to I want you to know, with what you know about what I just pointed out to you, 
historically about what fascism believed. Fascism was a worldview. It's a philosophical worldview, a way of understanding the world. Think of it this way. Um, you know, if you if you were to think of your brain as a computer, okay, and I'm going to use Macintoshes as an example, not because I'm a Macintosh fanatic, even though I am, but my Macintosh, um, I have the ability to run either uh, the Mac OS or I can run Windows on my uh, on my computer. The reason why is because uh, the same chipset that runs many of the uh, the Windows based laptops is the same chipset that's inside my MacBook Pro. Um, you know, it's an Intel uh, Core Duo thing. I forget the name of it, but anyway, that the same thing that runs my Mac is the same thing that that runs the majority of laptops out there. As a result of it, they have this program called Boot Camp, and I could literally, using the Boot Camp so- Boot Camp software, I could turn off my Mac operating system and I can boot up my operating system and run Windows natively, really fast too, on my uh, MacBook Pro. Okay, so when you think about fascism or you think about the worldview that we embrace here, you know, in the United States, um, that individuals have rights and, you know, and there's certain, you know, for instance, when we when, you know, we talk about the uh, United States Declaration of Independence, it says things like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident or axiomatic that all men are created equal or and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And so when the the American Revolution, it's a revolution of the people saying as an individual I have a right to have my voice heard in uh in the government and to be represented uh, when decisions are made that that affect me especially in my pocketbook. And so that you know you you think about uh, you know what caused the United States Revolution to you know to spark up. There was a particular philosophy that's running in there. There's a particular worldview that's running uh, you know under the hood, and that worldview has particular assumptions. And those assumptions, that worldview, think of your brain now as a computer. Your brain is running an operating system that has particular assumptions. So the assumptions that we have that says that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, these are concepts that are rightly derived directly from the scriptures. Let me give you an example, okay? Um, Transcendent claims, transcendent truths apply to everybody equally, even if they're the king. When you look at the Old Testament, you have examples of the Old Testament prophets prophesying to kings and calling them to repent of their idolatry and their sinfulness. Okay, so what happens is is that God raises up a prophet and the prophet speaks to the king and calls the king to submit to God's laws. Right? Strange stuff. Okay, but that's all part of the assumptions that we operate from because for the most part, um, what we've inherited is a, is a government that has as its assumptions a Judeo-Christian worldview, okay? That's the software that runs in our brain. Well, what happened in Europe, okay, there was a reaction against that worldview. There was an, a, a reaction against those assumptions, and they created their own operating system, their own worldview, their own way of looking at things that rejected individual rights and instead said that the individual doesn't exist. What exists is the community. 
And the community is the being that exists, and the community gets to decide what is right. And we reject the worldview that, and the morals of the God of the Jews and the God of the Christians, and instead we embrace our concept of community or the uh, the Volk or uh, you know the Fashi, whatever you want to you know, they you were calling it. And so, with all of that in mind, so what what fascism is? It's a worldview. It's a software operating system for the brain. That's what it really was, and there were certain key elements to how that operating system functioned and what was assumed by it. So, you know, those of you living in Western culture, you know, you know, growing up in, you know, in the United States and some of the Western republics, you you have you've you've inherited a worldview that is strongly based upon the Judeo worldview, the Christian worldview that has ideas regarding the individual and his rights and truths and who they apply to and things like that. That's an operating system that your brain works with. Fascism has a competing operating system with a completely almost counter-reactionary set of assumptions against it. Now, with this in mind, okay, knowing now, at least to some degree, some of the assumptions and thoughts and ideas about what fascism was, I want you to... I'm going to read this to you. I'm not going to play it for you. I'm going to read to you Catherine Jefford Shorey's comments that she made during this statement in July of 2009 in Anaheim, California. Here's what she said. The overarching connection in all of these crises has to do with the great Western heresy that we can be saved as individuals, that any of us alone can be in a right relationship with God. It's caricatured in some quarters by insisting that salvation depends on reciting a specific verbal formula about Jesus, that individualist focus is a form of idolatry, for it puts me and my words in the place that only God can occupy. At the center of existence, as the ground of all being, that heresy is one reason for the theme of this convention. So when Catherine Jefford Shorey made these comments in 2009, talking about the great Western heresy of individual salvation, so many people went, what on earth is she talking? Where did that come from? Answer, that came from the fascist worldview, from the fascist operating system, which is alive and well and running in the brains of many folks in the Western world now, and it's growing by leaps and bounds in the United States. Now, I want to point one more thing out. I made a point about the fact that there were churches that were influenced by fascism. I'm going to read for you just one paragraph from a book that I strongly recommend that you read called Twisted Cross, The German Christian Movement in the Third Reich, uh, written by Doris uh, Bergen. Okay, talking. Of, listen to the statement, and I want you to listen carefully for what was going on here, because here's here's what was happening in Protestantism in Germany when National Socialism basically came to power in the uh, in the ni- early 1930s in Germany. What do you think the reaction of the Protestants was? Well, it was mixed. There was an entire group of Protestants who wanted to change Christianity and its emphases in order to make it appealing to a culture that had bought into National Socialism. 
Okay, and I want you to listen to what Doris Bergen wrote in the 1990s. She's, she wrote this. Finally, one might interpret the German Christian movement as a sincere but misguided mission to rescue Christianity from a Nazi assault. Many former members of the German Christian movement took such a stance after the war, arguing that they had only wanted to make Christianity acceptable in a national socialist society. So this line of thought might appear to have some credibility in that the German Christians concentrated their energies on the same aspects of Christianity that were most severely attacked by the religion's Nazi degenerators. The Nazi and neo-pagan critics in Germany reviled Christianity for its Jewish roots, for its doctrinal rigidity, and for its invenerating womanish qualities. The German Christians, in turn, focused their efforts on proclaiming an anti-Jewish, anti-doctrinal, and manly Christianity. German Christians, these are Protestant Christians, focused their efforts on proclaiming an anti-Jewish, anti-doctrinal, manly Christianity. The Nazis didn't like, the socialists did not, I'm sorry, the fascists did not like the fact that there was Jewish roots to Christianity, that Christianity was doctrinally rigid and had so-called womanish qualities, and so they changed Christianity to make it anti-Jewish, anti-doctrinal, and manly. So now I come back to the thing, kind of circle back to the Guts Church thing. So Guts Church, in order to make Christianity appealing to the American culture, specifically men, that's one of the reasons why it's called Guts Church. You know, everything they do is really geared towards getting men to church through basically capitulating to the whatever the male culture is of Tulsa, Oklahoma. In their capitulation... The doctrine they teach is not biblical Christianity. In their capitulation, their actions are actually contrary to the clear teachings of the Word of God. And they've come up with a, quote, manly Christianity. But how is this any different? How is this any different than the Christianity that the so-called German Christian movement came up with at the time of the fascist regime uh, under National Socialism and Hitler in the uh, 1930s? and 40s. How is it any different? You see, when you try to rescue Christianity from a culture that is vehemently against particular tenets and pillars of the Christian faith, you cease to have Christianity. Instead, what you end up getting is something that isn't Christianity at all. You have something that is contrary to it. And the reality is is that people do get hurt. My concern right now, my concern right now is that there is a man who is who last night stood before Jesus Christ to give an accounting of his life. Is the Christianity that he heard at Guts Church Biblical Christianity? Is the gospel that he was told about at Guts Church the biblical gospel? In other words, was that young man, prior to losing his life at Guts Church, 
was that young man truly brought to repentance of his sins and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins? Or did he enter eternity and stand before Christ believing a false God, a false gospel, a false Christ at a church that had cut so many cultural corners that the Christianity they've, that uh, Bill Shear has created looks nothing like biblical Christianity. A Christianity that glorifies violence and fighting, that glorifies Tulsa, Oklahoma, and manliness, whatever that is. How is it any different than the apostate Christianity that took root and hold under Hitler's regime in Germany? I don't see any difference at all. Okay, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We come back a short but good sermon review that has a great, great contextualization in it to help you understand a biblical text without compromising the text itself. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. I got another good sermon from Greenfield, Indiana. Details shortly coming. The good, the bad, the 
ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church, Greenfield, Indiana. Presiding for this will be the pastor, the pastor William Daniel O'Connor. The sermon itself is entitled, Eternal Life is a Matter of God's Mercy and God's Mercy is for Us All. The text is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, starting at verse 25 and ending at verse 37. I'm going to read that for you here shortly. Now, something I want you to listen for in this sermon. There is a contextualization that takes place. The Seeker Driven guys talk about the need for contextualization. And on some level, they're right. And what I mean by that is this, is that you have to understand that you and I don't live in the New Testament era. We did not grow up in uh, first century Palestine or Judea. As a result of it, there are certain cultural things that we just don't quite get. Why is it? I feel like the music's interrupting here. Hang on a second. I'm kill the music here. So, so that being the case, because you and I didn't grow up in first century Judea, we there are certain cultural things that we don't quite get. Uh, one of the jobs of a pastor is, remember, to study and to show himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, but rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. So that means that a pastor's job is to be a good student of God's word. And uh, and so because none of the pastors alive today grew up in first century Palestine, it's important that they do understand historically. Remember, we we, we believe in the historical grammatical method. History and grammar, history and grammar. These are the things that shed light on the text. So what happens is is that his job is to understand what was going on culturally then and then find a way to translate that for us as he's teaching us the biblical text so that we can understand the full weight and magnitude or really tease it out in such a way that we sit there and go, oh, wow, that's what that means. Okay, But the contextualization is never to get in the way of preaching the text like we heard of not too long ago uh, Troy Grambling from Potential Church and his you know uh, W uh, based on you know, series based upon the Wizard of Oz that's where the contextualization completely got in the way to the point where the text didn't make any sense at all because the contextualization was in the driver's seat now in this particular sermon what I want you to listen for and pay close attention to is the fact that the text is driving and the illustrations that he brings forward one in particular one in particular are designed to help us understand the text it's to speak it and communicate it to us in a way that makes us go oh oh that's what that means okay so let me read for you the gospel text for the sermon. The sermon, again, is based upon the gospel of Luke, chapter 10, starting at verse 25. It says this, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?
He said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, well, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, all right, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go, and you do likewise. Now that's the gospel text. This is a tough passage. And uh, and here is Pastor William Daniel O'Connor of uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Greenfield, Indiana, out there near Ohio, preaching on this text. Here we go. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God, our Heavenly Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the power of his life-giving spirit. The Word of God for our meditation this 13th Sunday after Trinity is written in our Gospel for today, the Gospel according to St. Luke, the 10th chapter, beginning at the 25th verse. It is Luke's account of how a lawyer uh, approached our Lord one day to put him to the test. And in response, our Lord told him the story of the Good Samaritan. This is our text. Please. The name of Jesus, dear Christian friends. You ever tried to debate someone? Try to win an argument with them? Sometimes it can be difficult to do. You have a point you're trying to make, you're trying to convince them of, while they're trying to convince you of a point they are trying to make. If you let the other person gain control of the debate by letting them form it in terms of the point they are trying to make, the debate becomes all the more difficult to win. One way to avoid doing that, a way to gain control of the debate yourself, is by asking them a question. When you ask a question in a debate, you gain control of the debate by putting the other person on the defensive. And also, it helps you to frame the debate in terms of the point you are trying to make. You want to gain control of a debate? You want to win an argument? Ask a question. Especially in response to a question. Jesus does that in today's gospel. In fact, he does it twice. When a lawyer approaches him seeking to put him to the test, Jesus, he asks two questions of Jesus. And Jesus, in response to those questions, does not answer them. Instead, he asks questions of his own. In so doing, Jesus avoids taking the lawyer's test. Instead, he instructs 
him about God's gift of eternal life. What Jesus teaches is that eternal life is a matter of God's mercy. As we all know, God's mercy is for all. As we look at that together today, we return to our gospel from Luke chapter 10, where we hear again our Lord's well-known story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus told that story in response to a lawyer who, as I just said, was seeking to put him to the test. The lawyer asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, as I also just said, answered the lawyer's question with another question, saying, what is written in the law? How do you read it? With that, Jesus took control of the debate, framing it in terms of the law. God's word of both law and gospel to his people of old. The lawyer, who we could assume knew something about the law, quoted a passage from the law known as the Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which served as the creed of ancient Israel, which states, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh, or as it's usually translated, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he added to it another statement from the law in Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, Love your neighbor as yourself. We're not sure why he combined those two statements together from Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, love God, love neighbor. We're not sure why, but we do know that Jesus himself combined those two statements or laws together in his own summary of the law. When you look to Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12, you see Jesus do that. It could be that this lawyer knew of, had heard of the teaching of Jesus. He knew that Jesus himself had done that, summed up the whole law of God in terms of love God and love neighbor. And so he gives an answer here that he knows Jesus will agree with. And Jesus did agree with it. He said to the lawyer, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But who could do that? Who could love God totally and completely with one's heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you kidding? That couldn't have seemed any easier in Jesus' day for the lawyer than it would seem for us in our day. Not only that, but even if the man were to assert, the lawyer were to assert that he had done that, love God totally and completely, he also says he has to love his neighbor as himself. Now, that's equally difficult to do, and it's a lot easier for others to disprove, to, to call it into question. After all, if he says he loves God totally and completely, who's anyone to dispute that? What evidence can be brought forward to show that he didn't? But love for one's neighbor? Ah, now that you could... You know, you could dispute. That you could ask for evidence to prove or disprove. Maybe the lawyer didn't have enough evidence. That seems to be a possibility. As Luke tells us that desiring to justify himself, he questions Jesus further, asking, who is my neighbor? In response to that, and to set up his next question to the lawyer, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. We all know the story, how it goes. A man is journeying from Jerusalem, down from Jerusalem to the nearby city of Jericho. Along the way, he fell among robbers who, who'd robbed him, uh, stripped him, beat him, and left him for dead. We know how three different men came upon him lying on that road. There was a priest who passed him by on the other side, doing nothing. 
There was a Levite who basically did the same. And then there was a Samaritan who, in contrast to the priest and Levite, showed compassion for the man by stopping and helping him. After telling the story, Jesus gained further control of the debate with the lawyer by answering his question, who is my neighbor, with yet another question, saying, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? When the lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus responded, finally, to the lawyer's original question which he asked at the very beginning. Again, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer, you go and do likewise. You go and do like the Good Samaritan. You go and show mercy to your neighbor, especially the one in need. Eternal life, Jesus says, is about God's mercy. You see, Jesus didn't answer the last question of the lawyer. He never did answer it. Who is my neighbor? Instead, he turned it around into a different question. To whom can I be a neighbor? In doing that, Jesus made the point that it's absurd to try and figure out from the law of God who we are obligated to love and who we're not obligated to love. In fact, even asking such a question betrays the lawyer's ignorance, his lack of understanding of God's law. For God's law certainly did not teach that we're supposed to love some, but not others. Jesus gives the lawyer a better understanding, a more accurate understanding of the law, helping him understanding it today, understand today in terms of God's mercy. Indeed, the law was the word of God's mercy to Israel, calling her to respond to it by showing mercy to others. Or to state this in terms of the lawyer's original question to Jesus, the eternal life that God's law provided was a gift to be received like an inheritance, not worked for like a wage. Eternal life is a matter of God's mercy. And God's mercy is for all. Because God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for all. We see that in a few details of the story of the Good Samaritan. Let's just recount a few of them here. First, the wounded man is not identified. He's just a man. He doesn't say he's a Jew. Doesn't say he's a Gentile. Doesn't say he's a fellow Samaritan. He's just a man. Not like any other man who fell into misfortune. Also, many scholars believe that in the story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan is the Christ figure. He represents Jesus in the story. They believe that because of the risks that the Samaritan took to help the wounded man. For one thing, when he stopped... Along the side of that road, and it's still a dead, as I, as I read in one commentator, it's still a dangerous road in spots from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he stopped to help the wounded man, he put himself at risk of being robbed, like the man had been. There's no notice in the story that the robbers had been caught. The Samaritan appears to be of some financial means. He's got, a, he's got a, a, an animal he's riding on, probably a donkey, so that's worth something. Probably, you know, I mean, what's to say when he hops off to help the guy, the, the, the wounded, 
that he didn't get robbed and beaten himself. He takes a real risk in doing that. Also, when he took the man to the inn, probably nearby Jericho, that's the city to which they're all journeying today in this story, when he takes him there, he risks himself being blamed for the man's assault. After all, he's a Samaritan. Jericho is a Jewish town. Samaritans in Jesus' day hated Jews, and Jews hated Samaritans. Now watch what he does here to help you understand just the magnitude of what the Samaritan did. Watch the contextualization that he engages in here. Watch this. Wasn't anybody else to blame? In fact, this is kind of funny. I read a commentator this week. He actually compared this to something. He said, he said, for the Samaritan to bring this wounded man into an inn in Jericho would have been like a Plains Indian in 19th century America walking into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy slung over his horse. Taking him up into the, into a room above the local saloon. He said that Indian would be lucky to get out of town, out of Dodge alive, even if he managed to save the cowboy's life. And that gives us some idea of the risk that Samaritan took in bringing the wounded man, possibly a Jew, into Jericho. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. That is a fantastic illustration. It's a fantastic illustration that really helps us get what's going on in the text. You know, I, I fear that if a seeker-driven guy were to sit down and try to figure this out, and he, and he read that in a commentary, he'd do an entire sermon series with an Old West theme. And as a result of it, the, the text would get lost. You know, we're gonna do, we're gonna do an entire sermon series entitled, Plains Indians, you know, some, you know, some weird thing like that, right? And, uh, you know, and, and so you'd, you'd walk into church and there'd be a teepee up on stage and the pastor would come out with spurs and a big 10-gallon hat and, and uh, you know, cowboy boots on and, you know, and he'd kind of, you know, mosey on up to the pulpit and, you know, you know stuff like that because that what would end up happening is is that the the sermon illustration would end up taking over the whole sermon. That's not what's going on here. That was a fantastic contextualization, a fantastic word picture that helps us grasp the magnitude of what it is that this Samaritan did. And helps and and all of that is to help support the idea that uh that the the Samaritan in this in this story according to Pastor O'Connor here uh, is representing Jesus. You know, that's the Christ figure. And so all of that really helps us understand, but what's in the driver's seat? The gospel text is, and the illustration, the contextualization is there as a servant of the text to help us understand the text, but it hasn't taken over the, uh, the, the, the church service. It hasn't taken over the text itself. And, and as a result of it, we still have Christ. We understand the, the, the context of this uh, story much better and as a result of it, Jesus really, truly is still the center of all of this. And he's really teasing out the gospel here. Fantastic, fantastic, artfully done. Would have been quite a risk, indeed. In addition, the Samaritan paid for the man's convalescence in the inn out of his own pocket. This is important. 
Because from what we see in some of our Lord's other parables, paying a debt you owed was very important. The man could have been thrown in jail for not being able to pay his hotel bill, and he wouldn't be able to pay it. He'd just been robbed. He was busted broke. He had no money. When the Samaritan pays his bill at the end, he redeems the man. He pays his debt for him, giving further evidence of his compassion and his mercy. Wouldn't that exemplify the compassion and mercy of God? Who in sending his son to a cross paid our debt to redeem us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. Yes, like the good Samaritan, God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ risked his life in journeying down, not from Jerusalem to Jericho, but from heaven to earth. Like the good Samaritan who exposed himself to the same dangers that had robbed the man and left him wounded, Jesus exposed himself to dangers that threatened to rob us of life and leave us wounded in the dust of death. In being wounded on Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus Christ joined us on the road to Jericho, and in rising again from the dead, he restored all of us to eternal life, the same eternal life that the lawyer asked Jesus about in today's gospel. All of that is true because of God's mercy, a mercy which is for all. And that brings us back to the lawyer's original question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What we've seen today is that we can try to earn it as the lawyer desired to to do. But as Jesus makes clear, that's only going to end in failure. Better to receive it like an inheritance as a gift of God's mercy. And that will, in fact, help us keep God's law. Because it will free us to show mercy to others. My dear friends in Christ, we are free to show mercy to others, as the Good Samaritan did, as we ourselves cling to God's mercy in Christ. We can do that because eternal life is about God's mercy. God's mercy is for all, including us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Boy, it, <laughs> good Bible teaching doesn't need to take a long, long time. Good Christ-centered, cross-focused teaching doesn't need to take a long, long time. Good Christ-centered, cross-focused teaching focuses us on Christ and His cross. It uses illustrations as a means of serving the text rather than trying to make the text serve the illustration. And at the end of it, you hear a clear proclamation of what Christ has done for you. And you better understand what Jesus was getting at. Mm, Good stuff. Good, good, good stuff. Artfully done. Difficult text. Well, well done. All right, so that's our program for today. Just a reminder, we're listeners of Radio. Visit our website and support us, and thank you for doing so. 
Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.